Now, if you have your Bible open again, our text this evening is uh, Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. In 1759, uh, William Cowper, uh, whom you may know as the author of many of the great hymns of the church, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, uh, Oh for a Closer Walk with God, and so on. Uh, He had a total uh, mental breakdown. He was 28. He had a total mental breakdown and tried three different ways to commit suicide, convinced himself he was beyond hope, Uh, In 1763, he was committed to uh, an asylum for the insane. And at that place, there was a 50-year-old minister uh, called Reverend Nathaniel Cotton who looked after the patients. And by God's wonderful providence, uh, this man Cotton was an evangelical believer uh, who was full of compassion towards Cowper, loved him and... and, uh, held out hope to him repeatedly, despite Cowper's insistence that uh, he was damned and beyond hope. Uh, Six months into his stay at this asylum, Cowper found a Bible lying, uh, not by accident, on a bench in the garden. And first of all, he looked at John chapter 11 and saw, as he said himself, so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Saviour's conduct, that he felt that he had hope. And then he turned to the the very passage that we're looking at tonight about a righteousness from God. And that became the turning point in his life. And in his diary he wrote, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, And the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Uh, In June uh, 1765, He left uh, the asylum at St. Albans and he lived and he ministered for 35 more years. Now these were not all years of plain sailing. He struggled with depression, uh, but he uh, exercised a fruitful ministry for the kingdom of God, writing uh, many hymns as part of that ministry. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Uh, it is a very condensed passage, so uh, we move down a gear again as we come into it. We're only going to look at just over uh, one verse this evening. Uh, but it is profoundly important for understanding uh, what it is to be a Christian, the whole idea of a righteousness from God. The words, but now, act as a great hinge uh, in Romans. 
Now, you'll know that the, the chapter divisions in our Bibles were not there originally. They were, they were placed subsequently, so there is nothing of divine inspiration in the chapter divisions. And it might have been more appropriate, really, to have had a chapter division at this point, because the material is quite different. Uh, Paul has been building up uh, a solid case for there being no exceptions to the fact that we are all condemned because of our sin. Uh, the freewheeling pagan uh, becomes admired in a downward spiral of passion, leading to self-loathing and despair. Uh, the pagan moralist, uh, very much like today's uh, unbeliever who thinks that you can be good without religion, fails nevertheless to keep his own standards. And then that uh, pa paragon of, of religious virtue, the Jew, who has been entrusted with all of the privileges of God, chosen people, law, and so forth, he is unable to keep uh, the commandments which have been entrusted to him. The world is a mess, Paul says. No one is different. And making it contemporary, it's the same today, isn't it? The world is in a mess today. We have no common commitment to God's values which would allow us to face the many forces which would try to destroy our society. Britain's convinced it doesn't need God because it's modern and enlightened, just like the, the moralist in Paul's day thinks that you can be good without religion. And we spend millions of pounds of taxpayers' money on sticking plaster-type responses to the things that are endemic in our society. Addictions, family breakdown, violent crime, uh, the, the benefit mentality. Uh, we're confronted uh, today by the threat of terror posed by uh, Muslims who hold their beliefs fanatically. But the West has no power to challenge the values of uh, IS because it's thrown out its own beliefs and values in favour of multiculturalism and relativism. And so the question is still with us today, where is the hope? And it is found, as Paul is going to tell us now, in the act of God in Jesus Christ, which has provided us with what we cannot find within ourselves. This but now is referring to the great event of God that splits history, that began with the, the manger at Bethlehem, that, that was climaxed in the emptied cross and the emptied tomb. Jesus is God's, but now, Jesus changes everything. Once we were condemned, now we are justified. Once we were at war with God and God was at war with us, now we're at peace with God. Once we were excluded, now we are included and we participate. There is this huge change, this sea change, this 180 degree turnabout in our situation because of Jesus. He is God's great but now. And Paul uh, expounds this, begins to expound this 
in terms, first of all, of a righteousness which God has given to us. And he says that this righteousness is related to the law which has gone before in two uh, particular ways. It's apart from the law, and yet it is testified to by the law. And so we're going to look at these uh, things together, looking first of all at the righteousness from God that has been made known, and then to look at how it relates to the law of God. The new thing that's happened, Paul says, is the making known, the manifestation of a righteousness from God. Literally, it's a righteousness of God. And, and so it could, technically, it could be understood as the, the righteousness that describes God, that this is God's character. He is a righteous God. But the NIV, I think, has made a correct judgment call in translating this as the righteousness from God. Uh, it's a righteousness which God has given us. Uh, so it's speaking of the status the righteous status which God confers. He gives something. It has come from him and given to us. Therefore, the meaning is the same as the expression righteousness of God that we find back in verse 17 of chapter 1, where we read, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God, or of God, has been, is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's clearer there because this can't refer to God's righteous character because that's not from faith from first to last. But the righteousness that God gives to us is received by faith, as Paul says here. So the righteousness that we're talking about is a righteous status before God, which he gives us. What is it? Uh, simply this. God has in Jesus Christ assumed human flesh and he has lived a perfect life and his perfect record is credited to every believer. Sometimes that's called, it's imputed to every believer. It's put to the account of every Christian from the, the humblest, newest convert to the oldest saint, this righteous record of Jesus Christ is put to your account. To be justified, as Paul will call it, is to be declared righteous. doesn't mean that God is ignoring our sins. He deals with them head on. He punishes them in his Son so that they no longer hang over us, threatening condemnation. But in addition, he says, all of the righteous obedience of my son as he lived out his life in a human context is now regarded as belonging to you. It is given to you. The righteousness from God. Now, sometimes the theologians call this an alien righteousness. It's one of these quaint expressions nothing to do with little green men or anything like that, an alien righteousness in the sense that it comes from outside us. It doesn't come from within us. 
It is something which God has conferred upon us. So we are at the same time righteous and yet sinners. Let me try and uh, make this a bit pictorial. One, one, of the, one of the most satisfying tasks of the shepherd is in the springtime when uh, a ewe has lost her lamb and there's another lamb looking for a mother because this lamb has lost her mother. You have this dilemma, how do you match up the two? You've got one lamb looking for a mother, you've got a mother looking for a lamb, but they're not of the same family. <coughs> you take the lamb to the, the ewe that's lost hers, she sniffs around, quickly realises that this is not the, 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 the smell of my lamb, and, and imperiously uh, butts the lamb away and will have nothing to do with the lamb. But the shepherd, if the other lamb is available, can take the the lamb that had belonged to the mother and can skin the lamb and take off the skin, create a, a hole for the, the, the head to go through and pop the skin over the lamb that is to be fostered. And he then takes this lamb with this new coat, like an extra jumper on top of him, presents it to the you that lost her lamb. What does she do now? She sniffs around again. This time, she picks up the smell of her own lamp. And an adoption takes place, or at least a fostering takes place, because the lamb has been clothed in her own lamb's uh, skin. Now that, that's a picture of what happens with us. We, we are unacceptable to a holy God until that point when we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And clothed in Jesus' righteousness, we become acceptable to God and welcomed into his family. It's not on account of our own merit. It's on account of the holy garments of Christ's righteousness now credited to us. Yes, we are changed uh, there's a change which takes place within us, but it's not that which saves us. It's Christ's righteousness. Now, sadly, many people in the church just don't get this. And whether they would, they would probably not articulate it like this, but they would be subscribing to a view of, of imparted or infused righteousness, which means that somebody is thinking that uh, you're converted by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works in you a desire to do good things. And it's this new obedience which makes you right before God. Now, that is, that's official Roman Catholic teaching, but in practice it's believed by an awful lot of Protestant church people. And the trouble with imparted or infused righteousness is you can never know if you're saved, if your salvation is resting on what you've done in even a little part. You can never have assurance of faith. And Roman Catholics never will have assurance of faith so long as they're stricken to their own doctrine. 
And that's why the righteousness that comes from God is such stunning, epoch-changing news. But now, a righteousness from God has been made known. Now, this righteousness from God isn't some airy-fairy concept. It's not some legal fiction. It's not a theological theory. This righteousness from God is something that has been crafted out in the real life on earth of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The one that we were thinking of this morning who was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. His righteousness is perfect. Our righteous deeds, even at their best, are imperfect. We give our time and energy into helping someone who's in trouble, yet we find frustration and annoyance in the situation because life is like that. In a fallen world, all that we do is marked by frustration and frailty. But Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He was morally perfect. And yet he lived out that life of perfection in the real world. This is holiness that we need. Holiness in human form in the real world. When he was born, his birth caused Mary excruciating pain so that she cried out. The cries of a woman in childbirth split the air at Bethlehem. And when he served at the, at the counter in the, the carpenter's shop in Nazareth, there were awkward customers to deal with, people who wouldn't pay their bills and people who were nasty about their products. And Nazareth was, Nazareth was the kind of place where people uh, could be small-minded. And Jesus would have grown up and the, the, the young people of his own age would have made uh, nasty comments uh, about the fact that uh, he had been born when his mother and Joseph were not even married. And he lived his life out in a land where the inland revenue swindled people. And the government tortured lawbreakers. It was a hard reality. But in the midst of this hard reality, Jesus lived a life of perfection. Holiness fashioned in human form in the world as it is. And yet, he is the God-man. His righteousness isn't only realistic, it's not only relevant to us, because it was life in the world as we live it. It's sufficient, because he is God. This morning we were thinking how his salvation has a definite design. It's for his people but it had a sufficiency for the whole world. Even for the universe. Creation is groaning under the curse. It's looking forward to the renewal of all things. Zechariah tells us that when the new heaven and the new earth comes, uh, even the cooking pots and the bells uh, in the temple will be labelled holy to the Lord. And the righteousness of Jesus, Son of God, is infinitely vast. Vast enough to make holy every atom 
in creation, every grain of sand, every mountain, every ocean, and the worst sinner. Because Jesus is God. A righteousness that is vast and sufficient for me and for you, which has been worked out in the reality of the human world. This is the righteousness that has been revealed. And it's apart from the law, but it's testified to by the law. Interesting relationship with the law. The righteousness that God gives is apart from the law. In, in the Greek uh, original, the verse reads, but now apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been revealed. So the ordering of the words is emphasizing the fact that this is apart from the law. It's right up front. In the narrow sense of law, that means that the right standing that God gives us isn't obtained because we've kept the requirements of the Old Testament. doesn't mean that we have to be circumcised. doesn't mean that we have to keep all the ritual of Old Testament law. The new standing did not mean that people had to become good Jews again. Some people got the wrong end of the stick and they thought that that's what it did mean. And so Paul takes a lot of time writing to churches in Galatia and telling them that that's not what is required. People don't have to go back and adopt the, the ritual of, of the, the ceremonial law now. But in more general sense, it means that there's no contribution from human works. It's apart from the law in the sense of our efforts. So the right standing that I have before God doesn't depend on whether or not I've been baptized. doesn't depend on whether I, I tithe my income uh, before tax rather than after tax. doesn't depend on the fact that I've made uh, visits to the, the Holy Land you know, every five years or so on doesn't depend on the fact that I give generously to Christian aid or tear fund or whatever. It's apart from the law. It's apart from my efforts. Now, at that very point, Christianity is, is breaking with all other religions in the world. Now, there's a huge variety, huge diversity of religions. Hinduism, with its millions of gods. Buddhism, which strictly is not theistic. But every religion in between is based upon the fact that you will achieve the end, whether that's uh, eternal life or nirvana or whatever, by your effort. Even the Muslim jihadist, when he sets off that, uh, that, that belt of dynamite, and explodes himself along with others, is thinking that becoming a martyr will, will guarantee him a place in paradise. But Christianity doesn't work like that. Yes, we're, we're called to do good because we receive Jesus as Lord as well as Savior, and he calls us to be a disciple, but our obedience isn't what saves us. We are saved by a righteousness from outside that's been attributed to us. It's quite separate from works of merit from the law. And that's, that's huge, isn't it? The huge practical implications. God has saved me by a righteousness that 
has come from himself, not my own. Therefore, why would I judge anybody? Why would I compare myself to others either negatively or positively? Why would I look at others and think and berate myself that I don't match up to, to, to them as Christians and, and do myself down all the time because I'm not making a grade? Why would I think like that? I'm saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of my own half-baked efforts to please him. Why would I look down on other people? If, if I'm a Christian, it has nothing to do with me deserving it. It's by the pure grace of God that he has saved me. And I look at somebody who's not yet a Christian, I think, there, but for the grace of God, go I. There was nothing that marked me out, and there was nothing that marked you out as being worthy of God's salvation. It's all of grace. And if you're in heaven, you'll only be there because Jesus' righteousness was given to you to clothe you like that orphaned lamb. And that means, of course, that we can have assurance. We don't need to be insecure in our faith. If, if it was a case of this infused or imparted righteousness that I had to accrue myself, then I could never have assurance. But because it's a finished work which God gives to me, then I know that I am right with God because it's done in its completeness. It's apart from the law. But at the same time, Paul says, it's something that the law testifies to. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he's saying that this message, although it is absolutely fantastic, although it's, it's marking a new era, isn't some new thing which has slipped in unnoticed and unannounced. This has been heralded by the law. In other words, by the, the Old Testament. Law in its broadest sense. It has looked forward to this. All of the saints in the Old Testament that we are going to meet in heaven were saved by a prospective faith, looking forward to the Messiah who would come. Just as we look back to Jesus and his finished work. God hasn't changed his way of salvation. And before Jesus came, the law was, was picturing for us what that salvation would be like. And as we think of the righteousness of God, it was portraying for us in different ways what that would look like. So think of the fall itself. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. God pronounces judgment, but he also, within the judgment, gives a promise. And he says that the seed of the woman will come and will crush the serpent's head. And Adam and Eve, in their shame, have covered themselves, their nakedness, with fig leaves. And God does a remarkable act, which prefigures the righteousness that he will give. Animals are slain. First deaths take place in Eden. Blood is shed that they might be covered, that skin might be provided to wrap around their nakedness. 
what's that speaking of? It's speaking of the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that will cover our shame and our nakedness and make us acceptable before God. Righteousness, not our own. Go forward to Zechariah. You have that wonderful picture of the high priest Joshua. The holiest man in the land. Satan is accusing him. Satan's wagging the finger, pointing at his filthy garments. And new garments are provided for him. Pristine, clean, to cover over his shame. Proverbs 17, 15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Here's the dilemma. How can we be acceptable to a God who will not acquit the guilty? He clothes us in righteousness. He deals with our sin and he clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's our great hope. Brothers and sisters, this is a, this is a marvelous part of the gospel. The imputed righteousness of Jesus. This is worth singing about. Listen to uh, what uh, Count Zinzendorf uh, wrote in his hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. This spotless robe the same appears when ruined nature sinks in years. No age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ is ever new. So praise God for the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel. This is of the essence of what it is to be a Christian. It is to look away from ourselves and to trust in an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes to us from the outside, from Jesus Christ. So let me challenge you to examine your heart and ask yourself, am I in any way relying upon my own deeds for my standing before God? Anything at all, anything that I've done for, for myself or for God that I'm relying on. Because that's a perversion of the gospel when we do that. And what we're exhorted to do in the Word this evening is to make sure that we are turning completely away from any reliance upon our own works and are delighting in rejoicing in, relying upon the righteousness of Jesus, which is the righteousness from God given to us, because only on that <coughs> can we depend. That is our only firm foundation. May God, by his Holy Spirit, drive that into, deep into our understanding and into our hearts. Amen.
Let's sing a closing hymn now, which uh, touches on this, this aspect of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. <clears throat> and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?